Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the first of this season's Conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives us an opportunity to discuss our Carter Center peace and health efforts and current world issues with all of our neighbors here in Atlanta, as well as all of you who have come from various cities around the nation. We encourage you to learn more about the work of the Carter Center by going to our website, cartercenter.org slash conversations. You can also subscribe to the Carter Center podcast of the conversation series on iTunes. Tonight, we have a special welcome for our Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellows. The the fellowship board, members of the Mental Health Task Force, our Ambassador Circle members, our Legacy Circle members, our Board of Trustees, and our Board of Counselor members. Also, tonight's event is being webcast live at cartercenter.org. So there are many people who could not attend, be here with us tonight and not attend, who are listening through the webcast. For the next hour and a half, we have the pleasure of having President and Mrs. Carter discuss the Carter Center work to mention our 30-year history and to answer your questions. So I encourage you to write a question on one of the cards that you received when you walked in, and then volunteers will be walking down the aisles to collect those from you so we can ask those at the question and answer session. But now we would like to share a brief video of our work. There are six billion faces on Earth, some full of hope and dreams, others empty with despair, constrained by barriers that keep them from healthy and productive lives. The Carter Center works to tear down those barriers and create a world where everyone has a chance to live in peace and enjoy basic human rights. We look on human rights as a broad umbrella under which we not only have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, freedom of religion and that sort of thing, but also the right of people to have a decent home in which to live, to have food to eat, to have a personal freedom to choose their own leaders, and also to be free from unnecessary disease and hunger. Well, I think the main thing the Carter Center does is bring hope to people. It doesn't matter where we go. The Carter Center has worked in over 70 countries to advance peace and fight devastating diseases. The center's staff of over 150 people work in many of the poorest regions of the world. 
After leaving the White House, the Carters had a strong desire to continue to make a difference in the world. And in partnership with Emory University in 1982, they founded the Carter Center. The Carter Center was created as a place where people could resolve conflicts, like at Camp David. Over the years, the center has helped improve relations among nations and has opened the doors to peace. But it quickly grew to understand that peace is more than the absence of war. It is the building of strong democracies founded on human rights and justice for all. These are the seeds of permanent peace. Well, I think the main thing we've done is to promote the concept of freedom and democracy in countries that had never known what an election was. And this has been a transforming experience for many people. The center has observed over 76 elections in 30 countries, including Indonesia, Ethiopia, and Palestine. As a result, leaders are held accountable to the people in countries that have never had free and fair elections. The Carter Center is a leader in fighting neglected diseases. Diseases like guinea worm, river blindness, trachoma, and lymphatic filariasis. These are gone from the developed world, but they still afflict some of the poorest people on Earth. The uh, promising thing is that these diseases are all preventable because we've proven that in the rich world. If the folks are just given a chance to know what they can do to improve their own lives, then they can transform their own lives into an opportunity for hope and self-respect and anticipation of a better future. The eradication of guinea worm has been one of the major challenges of the Carter Center because this is such a horrible disease and is in such remote villages that no one else ever wanted to tackle it. And we're just on the verge of complete eradication of this disease from the face of the earth. And this will be the second disease in history ever completely eradicated. The transformation of a village population after one year of effort on their part, guided by us, is one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. The people of the Carter Center work for peace, fight disease, and most importantly, bring hope to those who never had it before. We are willing to take a chance that we might fail if we believe that the ultimate goal is worthwhile, worth our effort and worth an investment in people who have been neglected by others. We were the poorest, most isolated people in the world. And I think often if we weren't there, there would be nobody to help them. These people who have been suffering in the past when we work among them or with them, we find that they're just as intelligent, just as ambitious, just as hardworking, and their family values are just as good as mine. The Carter Center works where the need is greatest to improve the lives of the poor, the disadvantaged, and those who have no voice. The center's accomplishments are a fitting tribute to its founders. There are literally hundreds of millions of people whose lives have been changed by what the Carter Center has done, plus many others who have benefited from the proof that we have provided to other agencies that they could do the same thing. Building hope is what we do at the Carter Center.
Well, as you heard, President and Mrs. Carter founded the Carter Center 30 years ago. And since then, the programs have helped improve the lives of millions of people in more than 70 countries. The Carter Center staff of 175 wage peace, fight disease, and build hope by both engaging at the highest levels of government as well as working side by side with the poor and often forgotten people at the grassroots. The Carters are our hardest working volunteers and are fully engaged in all aspects of our work. They travel tirelessly around the world. In fact, they caution me about saying tirelessly. But they work with our staff to monitor elections, resolve conflicts, promote human rights, eradicate disease in developing countries. Their vision for a world at peace guides all of our work here at the center and serves as an inspiration not only to us, but for millions of people around the world who are seeking a better way of life. So join me in welcoming President and Mrs. Carter. Thank you all very much. I like John's reminder about tirelessly because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that word is not one that we remember in our vocabulary. <laughs> but it's always good to be here with you this, every uh, year to have these conversations. And what we'll do tonight, as we always have, is to give you a brief outline of the basic principles of the Carter Center, uh, what we've done the last year since we've met with you before, and then spend as much time as uh, left I hope a lot of time answering your questions about the things that we do or about issues that uh, affect you and your life uh, in this country and in other places. As I always remind our audience, we couldn't do anything without the support of many volunteers that come to help us at the Carter Center and contributors who make it possible to carry out our major programs around the world. The film is somewhat out of date. It said, I think, 76 uh, elections. We've now finished 92 elections. We do four or five troubled elections in the world every year. But our main project uh, in which we've become involved, to our surprise, has been in the field of health care. When Rosa and I founded the Carter Center, as John pointed out, 30 years ago, we thought we would basically have a place here with two or three basic principles. One was that we would just fill vacuums in the world. If the United States government or the United Nations or the World Health Organization or Harvard University was taking care of a very difficult problem that affected us or some other people, we wouldn't get involved in it. We wouldn't duplicate what they were doing or compete with them. So that's opened up to the Carter Center a vast array of unanticipated opportunities, I'll say, or challenges, or we look on them like as responsibilities. 
And this has led us, to our surprise, into spending most of our money, most of our time, most of our personnel effort in dealing with neglected tropical diseases. And I'm using the phrase that the World Health Organization uses. These are five or six diseases in which the Carter Center has been involved that basically are no longer known in the semi-developed world, not just the rich world, but just exist in a few countries, primarily in Africa and to some degree in Latin America. And they are ones that other people have not addressed in the past because of some very uh, clear reasons once you get involved in them. One of our main ones that's been more highly publicized has been guinea worm. Guinea worm is a horrible disease. I'm not going to describe it in detail, but it comes from drinking water that has guinea worm eggs inside the water. And then after about a year later, a guinea worm has grown inside the body about 30 inches long. And it takes about 30 days for that guinea worm, after it stings a big sore in your body, to emerge from the body in a very painful way. In the process, it destroys all the muscle tissue around the big sore. Something like the after effects of polio when you're young. So it destroys if your knee is where the guinea worm came out, then you can't bend your knee after the thing comes out. So what we tried to do was to find out where the guinea worms existed. And we found out that they were in about 20 countries, three countries in Asia, and 17 countries in the sub-Saharan region of Africa. And we found out they were in 23,600 villages. And we have been to every single village in the world. Not Jimmy and me. Rosa said she hasn't been to all 23,000, but our people have been. Our people. Our people have been there. But the Carter Center has been there to tell the people in those isolated villages what causes their problem. And we found at the beginning three and a half million cases of guinea worm. Well, this has been 25 years or so ago, and we spent a lot of money on it. But we've been to every village to tell the people what they could do, and we provided the provisions by which they could do away with the guinea worms in their bodies. And if you're there and do a, a thorough job for a year, you don't have any more guinea worm. So a lot of the early villages that we went to don't even remember what it was because it's been 25 years ago. They haven't had a case of guinea worm. Guinea worm is probably the, one of the oldest diseases remembered by human beings. It's in the Bible. We think it's a fiery serpent that's mentioned when the Israelites or the Hebrews were escaping from Egypt. And if you've seen the uh, symbol for a medical doctor with a staff with two things wrapped around, a lot of people think they're snakes. We think they're guinea worms. <laughs> because that's the way you dealt with guinea worms before we got to the villages. The only thing you could do when the guinea worms started coming out of the body was to wrap it around a stick and put a little bit of pressure on it. And if you put just enough pressure not to break the guinea worm, then you could reduce the exit time from 30 days down to about 20 days. And that's the only treatment that was known before the Carter Center got there. And that's where we think the caduceus came from. But anyway, we had three and a half million cases, and we think this year we're going to find at a maximum of 600 cases. So we've cut it down. That's in the whole world. And almost all of the cases, less than 10 cases outside of southern Sudan. And in southern Sudan now, we have about 120 people on our payroll, and we have over 8,000 volunteers who are not on our payroll, but we have trained that are in every village where guinea worm might emerge 
again this year, and as soon as it is, does emerge, we try to find that person, put them in isolation, so they won't go back into the water and repeat the process. So that's done away with guinea worm. Another disease that we deal with is called river blindness or onchocerciasis. Onchocerciasis is caused by the sting of a little black fly, kind of like a Georgia gnat. And an average little kid, little child, uh, we found in Latin America is stung about 30,000 times a year by the little black flies that come out of very fast-flowing streams. So over a period of uh, hundreds of thousands of years, the people that don't want to go blind have moved away from the little fast-flowing streams up onto the mountainside and left the, the bottom land, which is very rich, untended. So when we go into to a village now and treat them for river blindness with a free medicine that Merkin Company gives us, the people can not only know that they will never go blind, but they'll move back into the bottom land and start growing a lot better crops as well. On an average year, the Carter Center has treated about 12 million different people uh, that had river blindness and with the free medicine that Merkin Company gives us. We figured up before we came in this tonight that the Carter Center has treated 160 million times. And if you give them one tablet a year, they won't have blindness. They won't go blind. So we've kept that many people from going blind. And, and we've it, done away. And it will arrest the disease where it is. It stops it where it is. But it's still the adult worms stay in the body. So we have to give the treatment three or four, two or three times a year or more, four times a year, in order to do away with the adult worms as well then we don't have to treat the people anymore. So we had six countries in Latin America, from Mexico on down, that had river blindness, and we have now basically eradicated river blindness in Latin America. We only have one little tiny tribe, the Yamunamis, who live on the border between uh, Brazil and Venezuela, being a very tiny place in Latin America, and that's the only place left that they have the guinea worm Micro, I mean, the, the river blindness microfilaria in their body. Everybody else in Latin America will never see guinea worm, uh, river blindness again. We still treat people a lot in other countries. Uh, we've tried this doing away with it altogether uh, in Uganda and also in northern Sudan. But the rest of the places we treat river blindness so the people will never go blind. Uh, uh, the number one cause of uh, blindness in the world, uh, except for, for cataracts, is trachoma. And trachoma is caused by filthy eyes. If you go into a Maasai village or a Dinka village where the people live and you look at people, little children from a long distance, you think they have eyeglasses on. But they actually have a ring of flies around their eyes permanently, getting moisture out of their eyeballs. And so that's where their infection starts. And eventually it, it, it creates um, trachoma and the upper eyelid turns inward when it gets infected. And every time the, you blink your eye, the eyelashes slash the cornea, and that causes trachoma. It's the number one cause of, uh, of blindness in the world, not counting cataracts. And so that's what the Carter Center has adopted as another major commitment. Uh, we, we now have a, a surgery operation, and 40% of all the surgeries in the world last year were sponsored by the Carter Center. And one of the things you can do is to get rid of the flies. And we started create, telling the people how to build latrines so that, so that the folks can go to the bathroom in the daytime because otherwise they go into the woods or around their houses. And uh, it's completely taboo in many countries in Africa for a woman to relieve herself 
either to urinate or to defecate in the daytime. So they are completely restrained from doing that. A man can go behind a tree and so forth, as you know, as you do sometimes in our country. Uh, I, won't go into, I won't go into detail about this. But, uh, but what we did was introduce the building of latrines in, in uh, Ethiopia, and we thought maybe we'd have five or 10,000 latrines built. We've now passed 1.2 million latrines built in Africa to do away with the flies. And in, and in those parts of the world, I'm not known for the peace between Israel and Egypt. I'm known as a, I'm known as the number one latrine builder in the world. So, so that's the kind of thing that we do. We operate. We give, we give a medicine to prevent the, uh, the d disease and so forth. We have other diseases. I'm not going to go into detail because it takes too much time. But disease treatment for hundreds of millions of people over a period of years has been our number one project in, in the Carter Center. We also promote democracy and freedom. As I already mentioned, we've done 92 elections. This past year, for instance, we were deeply involved in the so-called Arab Spring. And the Carter Center is eager to go into countries that have never had democracy or that have a democracy that might be in danger of being aborted or changed. And so we just go into troubled election processes. And Tunisia was the first Arab Spring country. Uh, the Carter Center monitored that election. Rosen went there to represent the Carter Center. I had to go to another meeting. Later, we did a partial assessment of Libya, which was the second Arab Spring election. And then we've had a massive program in Egypt. And also, the Carter Center was restrained by not getting our credentials until the last minute. As you remember from the news media, Egypt expelled all the other United States agencies, but they let the Carter Center stay. So we've been able to monitor the first democratic election in Egypt in history, in thousands of years of recorded history. And we monitored the election of uh, parliamentarians in, in what we would call the House of Representatives, and then the, uh, a new Senate called the Shura, and then we were also there when they elected the new president. I have met several times with the new president of Egypt. His name is Dr. Morsi, Mohammed Morsi. Uh, he's a, got a PhD in engineering from Southern Cal University in, in California. Uh, he has two sons born in this country. They both are in American universities now. And before he was elected president of Egypt, he was a dean of engineering in a major university in Cairo, Egypt. So the Carter Center continues to monitor the process in Egypt, which we believe is bringing democracy there. And we believe that so far, Dr. Morsi has done a very good job uh, so far as president. We have uh, others in mind in the future. I would say one of the most challenging issues for me and the Carter Center has been to keep the peace process going in the Middle East, to try to bring peace to Israel and its neighbors. And as you know, our, country, our country's government has basically abandoned the effort. I would say the United States has less beneficial influence among either the Palestinians or the Israelis or the Jordanians or the Lebanese or the Syrians. And, or Egypt than we've ever had since Israel was founded as a nation. But the Carter Center stays there. We have a full-time office in Jerusalem. We have a full-time office in Ramallah in the West Bank. And we have a full-time organization in Gaza as well. And we deal regularly with the surrounding countries. We visit Syria whenever possible. It's not possible right this moment. And we also have an ongoing program in Egypt. I'll be going over there again uh, next month, as a matter of fact. So we believe that it's still possible if the United States exerts its leadership to bring peace to Israel and its neighbors 
and also justice and peace for the Palestinians. We still support the so-called uh, two-state solution with Israel having its own independent and, pr and protected uh, country and the Palestinians having theirs alongside. This is what the United States stands for, the United Nations uh, and others. We try to bring peace to other countries where the United States government doesn't have relationships. Uh, I've been, for instance, to North Korea three times uh, to try to bring peace to, between North Korea and South Korea and peace between North Korea and the United States. Uh, we uh, still have the only outside organization in Nepal, which is where Mount Everest is, trying to bring democracy to that country. We were there when they had the last election in 2008, and we maintain a presence there. Uh, Rose and I visit Cuba on occasion to deal with the Castros and try to cement ties between our country and uh, Cuba and to do away with the uh, embargo against the Cuban people, which is uh, long overdue and, and is ill-advised in my opinion, and ultimately hope to, to have relationships, full diplomatic relations between Cuba and, uh, and the United States. I don't want to go into any further uh, detail about that. But those are the kind of things that the Carter Center does on a regular basis. I've said many times that if uh, in the last 30 years we hadn't done anything except support Rosen and her mental health program, the Carter Center would be all worthwhile. And now I'm going to turn the program over to my wife, who will tell you about the Carter Center and also about the next so-called Defenders Conference, which is our major human rights effort every year. My wife, Rosalind. <laughs> Well, John has already told you that we have the mental health fellows uh, with us tonight. And the Card our mental health program here at the Carter Center works continuously to try to overcome stigma. I feel like I've been working to overcome stigma all my life. <laughs> and one day we were having a brainstorming session to see what else can we do that might help overcome stigma. And somebody said, after a while, somebody said, well, since the media have such a great impact on how people think about mental health issues, mental illnesses, and people living with mental illnesses, maybe we could bring some journalists here and let them become familiar with mental illnesses, mental health issues, so they could report accurately and in depth about the issues. That was the beginning, and this class that is with us tonight is our 16th class. We have, um, uh, every year we have six uh, journalists, two from the United States, and we've gone, well, our first few years it was just the United States, but then we've now um, uh, gone overseas. And the first one we had overseas was New Zealand, and then we had, and we, we fund the program. We give our fellas a stipend. I think it's still $10,000. We give them a stipend. They don't leave their jobs, but they work, they apply with a subject, and then they work on that subject for a year. And we always have those who came last year and told us what they were going to do and come back this year and tell us what they've done. And then we have the incoming ones that tell us what they're going to do. And so we have um, uh, two from um, New Zealand has graduated after a certain length of time. Now, we started out with five years, but we've had to give up a few more years to some of them. Um, they're on their own. And so New Zealand now has and has had for a good while now because um, they left. We, they were our first ones. They have a really good mental health journalism uh, program in New Zealand. South Africa 
this was, um, last year was our last year with South Africa. We had some um, people here today. And um, um, now we, then we had Romania. So we had the Romanian fellas today. And um, also, because South Africa is now in its last year, we chose another country, and we have chosen Colombia in South America. So we had two from Colombia here today that are going to lead the program in Colombia, which will be uh, this coming year. So um, we have our fellows here, and I'm really excited. And then we have an advisory committee that works with the fellows to help them with their projects. Um, another program from uh, that we work on um, in, in a mental health program is Liberia. Um, we decided, I think three years ago, to uh, begin a program in Liberia. We were looking at the country because we have other programs there in Liberia. And it's a country that has gone through war, had been going through 10 or 15 years of war, and people were traumatized, and we thought we would see what we could do. We found out they had one psychiatrist in the country. We have graduated three classes now of psychiatric, of, of nurses and um, physician's assistants that we have taught um, how to deal with people living with mental illnesses. And we now have uh, workers in every county in um, Liberia except one. And so in our new class, we just graduated the third class, a new class is going to have somebody from the last county. And, uh, so I'm proud of that. We're going to have 150 in all. That's right. We're working toward 150, and we have graduated 63 in our third class. Um, I work on, uh, Jimmy told me the other day that when he talked, he told everything about the Carter Center, and I just took mental health. <laughs> <laughs> but I work on all of the programs, too, so I was going to tell you. <laughs> I told him that I wanted to tell you about the Human Rights Defenders Program, because every year we have human rights defenders that come from um, the countries all over the world where they are working against the, the oppression. Sometimes um, uh, um, they are um, in danger, um, and they're really, really heroes. And it's so wonderful to have them come here and uh, talk about what they're doing. And we also take them then to Washington so that we can, uh, so that they can talk to congressional leaders in Washington about what's going on in their countries. But um, when we got to Egypt for the presidential election, as Jimmy has told you, the parliament was already elected. And they had elected seven or eight women out of the whole parliament. But when we got there, everybody was concerned, the embassy people and our friends there, we have a lot of friends in Egypt and the staff, the staff, because the women that had been elected to parliament were in the legislature trying to get um, the ban on, um, on um, female circumcision. Yeah, on, what, would you call, what do we call it? We call it genital, mutilation, gen, genital mutilation and child marriage. And they were trying to get the bans lifted so that the, they wanted the families to be able um, to determine whether they would perform these things in their family or whether their daughters could uh, be able to get married early. And we've had just horrible stories in our defenders' conferences about children 
six, seven, even six-year-olds being married, uh, by their, given in marriage by their families. And so this, we've been working really hard against the, these uh, genital mutilation and, and child marriage. And so uh, when we went to see the... And, and another thing is that the election had come down to where um, the real choice, there had been more candidates, but it had come down to the choice for the Egyptians was the last prime minister that Mubarak named and the Muslim Brotherhood. So, so many people didn't think they had a choice. They were really worried about what would, what would happen if the uh, Muslim Brotherhood won the election. And, uh, and everybody thought they might because they're close-knit and they had um, people everywhere in the country and they could organize. And so when we went to see the, the uh, candidates, we talked to them about that and the Morsi, we talked to Morsi about it. And the Muslim Brotherhood had issued the year before a statement on human rights that was a really good position paper. And they told us that they were working on, one, on women and that uh, we didn't have to worry um, if they were elected about them um, renewing the, or lifting the ban on genital mutilation and child marriage. And so um, we started thinking about it and we thought, well, wouldn't it be great, Jim and I thought, wouldn't it be great to have our Human Rights Defenders Conference? Last year it was on women, and this year it's going to be on women's issues. And so we decided and talked to uh, the people about it, and um, the, everybody was excited about us coming to Cairo, which we're going to do in February to have our Human Rights Conference on women. It is so exciting. One of the... <clears throat> And last year, and I think maybe the year before we had known her, we had this wonderful woman from Senegal here. Uh, many years ago, an, a woman from um, the United States, after she got out of college, went to Senegal. And she stayed. And I think she's in her 40s now, but she's been there for years. And she convinced this woman who called herself a cutter, a little Senegalese woman, that cutting was wrong and that she should not do that and that and convinced her, and they talked to her imam. She brought him last year to the Defenders Conference, this woman. And, um, in, and now in Senegal, and I don't know whether the surrounding area or not, but they have stopped um, genital mutilation in 5,000 villages, which is so great. And I'm sure she'll be. <laughs> And I'm going to be so glad when I hear her telling the Egyptian people about how bad, how bad that is. And when she starts talking, she doesn't know when to stop. <laughs> but that's okay. okay. That's okay. I'll turn it back over to Jimmy. <clears throat> uh, that's all. I think now we are looking forward to your, with some trepidation, to your questions. <laughs> John, you ready? ready. Okay. We've got some great uh, questions, and uh, President and Ms. Corey will uh, answer as many as we have time for. We want to thank those that have submitted uh, questions online or via Twitter, and we were able to select a few of those, uh, and then along with the ones that you've submitted as well. The first is an online question. 
How do you keep your enthusiasm and faith for the possibility of world peace and justice in light of all the negative daily news? Well, I think we have to look beyond what uh, governments do and, and try to concentrate on, on the ideals that have already made, always made our country great. And at the Quarter Center, we try to envision what would be the characteristics, I would say, of a real superpower. And, and to let the Quarter Center kind of uh, represent or demonstrate those characteristics. I, th I think that a, a real superpower would not just be the most powerful militarily, but a superpower ought to be one where people all over the world, when they were faced with a challenge to their peace, would say, why don't we go to the place on earth that is a champion of peace, not war? And I think that another thing is that people should say, when we think about a challenge to our own democracy and freedom, why don't we go to the place that has the finest, most honest elections in the world? And when we think about uh, environmental quality, people that are concerned about global warming, uh, they would say, why don't we go to the place for leadership that is a champion of environmental quality and is in the leadership of trying to stop the threat of global warming. Well, why don't we go to the place on earth that is a champion of human rights, that honors every provision of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and never intrudes on the privacy of their own citizens? Or well, why don't we go to the country on earth that is the uh, most generous in sharing its wealth with the needy people around the world? To me, that's what a real superpower ought to be. And I would say that that's what keeps us analyzing what the Carter Center has attempted in the past, what we are attempting now, so that we can represent not only the finest aspirations of an organization like ours, but what are the finest aspirations of a human being to, no matter what your faith might be, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Christianity, peace and, and freedom and justice and taking care of the world's environment and being generous so that's what the Quarter Center does. I hope we'll always do that. What will guinea worm eradication mean to you personally, and how will it make you feel? <laughs> well, it'll make me feel better than getting a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, <laughs> if that's possible, or getting the Panama Canal Treaty is approved by two-thirds of the members of the Georgia United States Senate or getting elected president. I, I think uh, 
it only took me just a couple of years to run for president or a few months to get the other things done, but it's uh, taken us 25 years to do away with the guinea worm. And, and I think that uh, when we finally have the last case of guinea worm, uh, undoubtedly in South Sudan, uh, this will be one of the crowning achievements of my life, and I'm just hoping, I'm, I assume be 88 years old, I'm just hoping that I'm gonna live longer than the last guinea worm. <laughs> <laughs> There are many Liberians living better lives thanks to your training from mental health clinicians. Are there any plans to expand to other post-conflict countries? We have not thought of extending it at all now. We have a lot of work to do in Liberia, but we're learning a lot. And we have other countries that have asked us uh, to come in, into them. But um, I think at, right at this point, we will probably um, if a country wants to um, have a mental health program, we'll take them to Liberia and show them what we're doing. <laughs> but I don't think we're going to take on another country right now. And in the future, I can see if we get a good program developed uh, that we can duplicate in other countries, I think it'd be really wonderful if we can do that. So let me ask you. It takes a lot of money, and, it, and sometimes it's um, hard to collect um, money for mental health programs. We, we've had a special program that I didn't have a chance to mention in Ethiopia. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Melissa Nave, who unfortunately died this past month, uh, was a champion of uh, improving health in his country. And we, a lot of our programs are in Ethiopia. But one of the things he asked us to do was to train health workers in Ethiopia and not bring them to the United States or to Great Britain or somewhere for their training, but to do it inside Ethiopia. And so we've trained about 7,000 health workers who have the capability of a, of, a, of a registered nurse or an physician's assistant. And in addition, we've trained 30,000 women who is, that's one person for every 2,500 population that have come from their own village. The quarter centers have trained them and they've gone back into the village to open clinics. So that, uh, we had about 72 curricular course, courses of study, individual uh, illnesses. One of them was mental illness. But I think that was just a small part of a total package. And I would guess after Rosen's program is successful in Liberia, then as we train health workers in other African countries, and we're now talking to Sudan and Nigeria, when those plans work out, I'm sure we'll have a much greater emphasis on mental health than we did have in Ethiopia. But we've already proven uh, complete success with our program in Ethiopia, and we're ready now to do it in other countries. In, in fact, uh, Sudan and Nigeria have requested yes. uh, that program, <laughs> and Mrs. Carter's mental health journalism fellows have worked on post-traumatic stress issues. And so that work is made available to other countries who are emerging from conflict as well. So there are uh, benefits from work in a more general nature that applies to specific countries. And the mental health program has done a lot of work on uh, post-traumatic stress for uh, veterans returning. Right. Um, working with also at Columbia University. Uh, one of our advisors is from Columbia. What is the state of democracy in Latin America following the dismissal of Paraguay's <coughs> president, uh, Hugo Chavez's re-election bid in Venezuela, <laughs> 
and the refusal to recognize results of the Mexican election by the main contender. I went to Washington this week and made a speech basically about this issue. Uh, the Carter Center has uh, begun, it began its uh, election monitoring process in Latin America. Uh, in Nicaragua and in uh, Panama, we've, we've done elections in Peru, we've done three or four elections in Venezuela, we've done elections in Paraguay and so forth, and helped with in Bolivia. So those are the kind of things that we've done, and also in Mexico. So we've learned a lot about uh, democracy in, in Latin America, and they have made a lot of progress. Uh, some of the problems that John mentioned uh, are serious, uh, but I think that the election in, uh, the elections in Venezuela, although uh, some people have criticized the result, which is Hugo Chavez having won, there's no doubt in our mind, having monitored very closely the election process, that he won fairly and squarely. As a matter of fact, uh, of the 92 elections that we've monitored, I would say that the election process in Venezuela is the best in the world. They have a very wonderful voting system where you go in and you touch the screen and vote the way you want to, and instantly that touch screen result is, is uh, recorded and can be transmitted electronically into the central counting headquarters, but it also prints out a paper ballot. And, and when you get through voting, you can not only have voted electronically, but you can look at the paper ballot and make sure that's the way that you wanted to vote. Then you put the paper ballot in a box and you can go back and check the results later on if there's any doubt about it. So this is what uh, is going on in Latin America. Mexico had their first honest election and the Carter Center was the only monitor invited in. Mexico now and all the other countries in Latin America except one, that is Venezuela, and another one in North America, that's the United States, every other country has public financing of all the election process. If you qualify to run for office, you get public financing, and outside money does not affect the outcome of the election. Mexico, for instance, puts the $23 million limit on what a candidate can spend. And if you're an outgoing president, you, you're forbidden by law from even campaigning for the candidate of your own party. The United States election process is shot through now with, I'd say, financial corruption. We have one of... We have, one of, we have one of the worst election processes in the world, in the United States of America. And, and it's almost entirely because of the influx of excessive amounts of money. And as you, you all probably know this, Mexico has a limit, I said, of $23 million. You know how much money I raised when I ran against Gerald Ford? Zero. And he raised the same amount. You know how much I, ran, I, I raised to run against Ronald Reagan? Zero. We got public financing for their election. You know how much money is going to be raised this year in the United States for the president and the Senate and House res uh, elections? Six billion dollars. Six thousand million dollars. And that money comes from people who now, under the Supreme Court ruling, don't have to be identified. They can give it secretly. And a lot of it can come from corporations partially owned by foreigners. So you see that this influx of money has now resulted in a total transformation of America into a negative campaigning process, both parties. In Mexico, they outlaw any negative commercial on television. 
and almost all of our $6 billion, one way or the other, <laughs> is spent just to tear down the reputation of your opponents. So I would say that compared to the United States, Latin America has gone beautifully toward democratic elections. When I was elected president, almost every country in South America was a military dictatorship. But our human rights policy resulted in a transformation, and now all of them in South America are democracies. And my hope is that in the future, either the Supreme Court will reverse its stupid ruling, <laughs> or the Congress will correct it, and let, and let candidates be financed by the $2 per person checkup, or whatever it is now, uh, that individual voters <laughs> give. That's what other countries do, and I hope we'll get back to that as well. I might say not only is I'm going to talk about South American countries, Latin American countries, but also all over Europe and every country that we monitor, the ones I mentioned today, Tunisia, Libya, Dominican, I mean, uh, in, in uh, Egypt, uh, the Congo, they all have public financing of elections so that uh, people that want to bribe a candidate or make an investment for influencing the outcome of the election and also the outcome of law writing in the future will not be playing the major role in elections. I feel very strongly about this, and uh, I, I think I've made that clear. <laughs> and the public money that you and Gerald Ford used was that check off on your income tax. You know, we used to have to check off or give a dollar or two dollars or something. And we never had a negative advertisement there. Not against a candidate, you no. did against issues. <laughs> the Carter Center is celebrating 30 years of work. What would you consider its greatest achievement, and is there something you feel it should focus on more in the future? Well, the thing that we've done that has benefited more people has have been obviously our various uh, health programs to deal with guinea worm and onchocerciasis, roboblindness, and trachoma, and lymphatic filariasis. That's when you saw the, the, uh, arm, the legs of people swell up to grotesque sizes. We still do that, as well as deal with malaria. So I would say we've helped more people individually with those programs than otherwise. But I think another thing we've done was we started the program of, of international monitoring of elections. Our first one was in Panama, our next one was in Nicaragua, and, and now we've not got 92 in all. And now there are about all, almost 35 other agencies in the world that offer their services to monitor elections. So I think that's brought a great surge of democracy to the entire world. It wouldn't have been there otherwise. And confidence in, among people in the integrity of their own political system, that's been very good. And we still try to bring about peace in the world with different uh, issues, and, and we try to elevate the uh, other, other issues that, that uh, affect uh, human beings. The Carter Center has had a, a, a slogan as well, not only to fill vacuums in the world, but also to be nonpartisan in nature, and not to fear to take a chance. So when a difficult issue comes up that governments don't want to address because it might not be politically popular, uh, we don't hesitate to inject ourselves into it. Sometimes we have success, sometimes we have failure. But when we try something that's worthwhile and do fail after to make a good pace effort, we feel like that's a measure in some cases of success. So I would say more people have been helped by the health programs, maybe psychologically and politically we've helped more with our democracy programs. 
Well, I haven't overcome stigma yet. (laughs) (laughs) But we did start the first um, journalism programs, and now the different other uh, mental health organizations have programs to educate journalists, and so that's a big big achievement. And also we helped... um, we worked on parity and finally got parity passed. And so we've, we've accomplished a lot of things. The next question is an online question for Mrs. Carter. Why are mental health services often targeted first when there are budget cuts within a state? <laughs> That's the history of my work. <laughs> um, I think it's because in the past, um, it goes back to when when I started, when nobody would talk about mental illnesses, nobody would admit having a, a family member, and so if the program was eliminated, you know, the public didn't rise up and, and become concerned about it, and they still don't, uh, to, to the degree that I would like for them to. But um, I just think it goes back to the history of mental illness and, the, and because we didn't understand what caused mental illnesses and just didn't have any idea about the brain. And I think with research now, um, um, we know more about it. And, and there's, there's concern when mental health issues are cut, but they're still in budgets now. Georgia was one of the only states in the whole country, I think, that got an increase in, in the budget for mental health in our state, and that was because we, uh, there was a suit that um, was brought against the state government, and um, we got a settlement in our favor. We joined as friends of the court, the mental health program did, and we got uh, a settlement in our favor, and the state has to do certain things. Um, and so we got uh, an increase in the budget uh, this year. But um, it, it all goes back to the history and the knowledge, not, no knowledge of, of the illness and of what to do about it. But um, hopefully we can overcome that. How do you envision the coexistence of China and the United States? And what does the Carter Center do in China? That's another major program of the Carter Center that I didn't have, have time to mention. But I'm, and so I'm glad the question came up. The Carter Center has been deeply involved in China now for a long time. As a matter of fact, very early in the Carter Center's uh, existence, I had just left the White House where I normalized diplomatic relations with China, and we had two health programs there. One was to deal with prostheses, uh, artificial arms and legs. We built a factory with the Chinese for that, and also to train teachers around China to educate deaf and blind children in elementary school. Uh, in the last 15 years, though, we've dealt with the process of election reform as envisioned by Deng Xiaoping quite early. That is, uh, China has a communist party system, as you know, that starts with the big cities and goes from there to the counties and then the provinces. The little villages in China are not part of the communist party system, and there are about 600, more than 600,000 of them. And the government of China about 15 years ago came and asked the Carter Center if we would monitor the progress of honest and fair democratic elections in the little villages. So that's what we have done since then. And we have uh, two major websites in, uh, in, in China. 
where people can look at the progress of, of uh, political reform. Right at this moment, we've kind of got a, strength, a restraint on us by the Chinese government because I think maybe in some cases we've gone too far by advocating democratization, but we are still there. And more recently, the Chinese have asked the Carter Center to work with the Chinese on the relationship, this is strange, strange between China and Africa. The Chinese are now probably the number one influence in almost every small country or poor country around the world, not only in Africa, but also, for instance, in, in Asia and in Latin America. And the Chinese have asked the Carter Center to help them improve their relationship with the people of Africa since the Chinese see that we've done such an intensive job with our health programs and, and democracy programs and agriculture programs in the past in Africa. So that's what we're doing basically in China now. I'll be going to China again this uh, December, we go there almost every year, to meet with the new leaders of China and existing leaders of China. For instance, the new leader of China who is supposed to take office next month, Xi Jinping, uh, we've met with him three times, and he's only been to the United States once. So the Chinese leaders who are grateful for my having normalized diplomatic relations want me to be sure to meet with their incumbent and new leaders and also to participate more than any other outside country in, in their internal affairs, including democracy and that sort of thing. So I believe that uh, we should reach out our hands of friendship and understanding uh, to the Chinese, protecting our own interest, of course. The Chinese respect strength, but we should cooperate with them whenever possible. And the Carter Center stays deeply involved on a, on a regular basis, a daily basis, uh, in some interior programs in China. And we have a Freedom of Information program. Yeah, the Chinese, uh, partially under our influence, I wouldn't say altogether, passed, passed a law last year, uh, rather a, a government directive uh, mandating that many of the former secret processes of the government be made public to their, to their own citizens. And so we, we have a regular visitation to China to help them strengthen their so-called access to information program or freedom of information program in China. In fact, we discovered that medical records are public knowledge in China, whereas county records and, and property ownership has been restricted. Just the opposite of what we experience. Where do you stand in terms of options for action on Syria, and how do you position Turkey in the process? Well, after I left the White House, uh, President Reagan severed diplomatic relations with Syria. <clears throat> when I was in office, I worked very closely with the leaders of Syria trying to bring peace to Israel. But Rosa and I went to um, Syria at least every other year for a long time during the 1980s and, and, and later. And we've been going to Syria since then to try to promote peace between Israel and its neighbors, Syria being one of them. And as you know, Hamas leaders were in Damascus, Syria for a long period of time. In those years before, two years ago, and when the revolution broke out in Syria, I would say that of all the countries that I've ever visited, there was more harmony among the different religious groups the large religious groups like, like Sunni Muslims, the smaller religious groups like the uh, Shia Muslims and the Alawites, the Christians, the Jews, they lived in harmony in Syria under the domination of the Assad family. Uh, in the last couple of years, of course, you've seen the revolution 
uh, erupt in Syria. Last uh, September, October, I advocated that the United Nations mandate that the 2014 election schedule to re-elect a president be moved up to 2012 or so to make the Syrian people, including the president, Assad, hold an election to see if the people wanted him to stay in power or not. The United States, though, decided last fall that Assad had to be deposed first by force or by otherwise. So that has meant that the revolution continues to take place. Assad continues to try to stay in office. He's got basically a loyal army so far. Uh, most of the Christians in Syria are supporting Assad, as, as are the Alawites, the smaller uh, Muslim group. And the outsiders have come in to join in with the Sunnis. And I would say that uh, many of the people uh, oppose the Syrian regime because it's supported by Iran. So I'm giving you a very complicated uh, explanation of what it is. But now, all the countries that despise Iran, which is supporting the Assad regime, are also for calling for the overthrow of Assad. And that includes the United States and Saudi Arabia and even and Turkey. So at this point, as you see, the United Nations is uh, basically stymied because the United States says Assad has to go. Russia and China, that are permanent members that have a veto, say no. And uh, Great Britain and France go along with the United States, so it's a stalemate. And my fear is that the situation will continue to deteriorate as both sides receive weapons from outside. And I would guess at this moment that the Assad uh, regime is going to be overthrown in the future. Whether that'll be in the next few months or after a few years, nobody knows. But in the process, the bloodshed is going to continue and the crisis will continue to evolve. Uh, two of my very close friends, Kofi Annan, the former uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, and, and more, more recently, Lakhda Brahimi, have been asked by the United Nations to be the peace negotiators. Uh, uh, Assad, I mean, I, uh, Kofi Annan resigned in protest because the United Nations were ineffective and Brahimi has just taken over. So I, I stay very close to those two men who work with me on another program, but uh, I don't see any prospect now of, of peace coming to Syria because too many other countries are involved on the outside feeding arms in, and I'm afraid the civil war is going to deteriorate even further in the future. There's no hope that I see of any good things coming out of Syria in the near future. Is the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel in jeopardy? I would say that the peace treaty that we negotiated now 33 years ago, not a word of which has ever been violated, will stay intact. Uh, when I went to Egypt uh, each time, or either to Israel, I always encouraged both countries to obey uh, the treaties because they were obviously good for Egypt and good for, the, for Israel. Before I became president, they had had four major wars between Egypt and Israel in the previous 25 years. Since the peace treaty, there hadn't been one ounce of bloodshed between those two countries. And so when I went there last fall to help the Carter Center monitor the election for a new government, uh, the, the people with whom I talked were the Muslim Brotherhood, 
who had been radicals, as you know, looked on by Mubarak as radicals and put in prison, but it looked very likely that they would be elected. So President Morsi, who's now the elected president of Egypt, uh, has promised me personally on two occasions that he will honor every word in the peace treaties between Egypt and Israel. If there are any changes that he would like to make, he understands and has told me and the outside world that he'll make the changes in the peace treaty only with the agreement of Israel. So this peace treaty is too valuable to Egypt and too valuable to Israel to be abandoned. And my prediction is, I would almost stake my reputation on it, it will not be abandoned or violated in a serious way by either country. <clears throat> How much confidence do you have in the Chinese holding free and open elections in Hong Kong? And how far do you think the Braves will go this year? <laughs> will the Braves go this year? <laughs> well, as you know, that the people in Hong Kong, uh, which belonged to Great Britain for almost 100 years, and then uh, have now, has now been turned back over to uh, China, is still semi-autonomous. And the Chinese uh, look on Hong Kong as their protectorate, like they do Macau and, like, and, and so forth. But uh, there is written in the agreement some provisions for the people in Hong Kong to have more and more direct elections for the parliament. And then uh, I think in seven years from now, uh, for the uh, president, or, or rather governor, or mayor, whatever you want to call him, the governor of, of Hong Kong. I, I would guess that uh, there's a fairly good chance that that will happen, although the Chinese still have to, have to give their blessing before these uh, demo democratic provisions actually are put into effect. The Chinese still have an indirect role to play in the elections, but the agreement so far worked out uh, guarantees more liber liberty in the future. Uh, I, don't, I can't really predict what's going to happen. My guess is what I've just said. Uh, I, Rose and I never miss a Braves game. If we're not there in person, we're watching it on television, listening on the radio. And uh, I still have confidence that the Braves are going to be uh, the wild card and in the playoffs. And if the Braves get in the playoffs, I think they've got a darn good chance to go all the way. <laughs> Could you talk about your decision to leave the Southern Baptist Church? And do you still teach Sunday school? And was singing with Willie Nelson at Chastain one of the high points of your life? <laughs> that was three questions in one. I'll take my choice. Uh, well, I'll start from the back and go forward. I've been on the stage with Willie Nelson, I believe, eight times. Uh, twice he's been to Plains to have a special concert just for our little town. And then I've been with him when I was president. He used to come to the White House and spend the night. He and I both would run uh, early in the morning five miles. And whenever he has a concert, uh, he always invites me up on the stage at the last song to sing a duet with him, usually um, Amazing Grace. And Willie knows that I have a terrible voice. So he always turns the microphone away from me so that uh, so the audience can't hear. But Willie Nelson also, uh, he knows that one of my favorite songs is Georgia On My Mind. 
when I got the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, uh, Willie Nelson was the star of the show. And although he forgot the lyrics, uh, he still was a favorite, I'd say, not only of the Americans there, but also the Norwegians. Uh, when we had the uh, Democratic uh, Convention uh, in uh, 1976, and I was nominated. Willie Nelson sang the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, he also forgot the lyrics, but nobody paid any attention. <laughs> so you can see Willie Nelson is a special friend of mine, and that was one of the high points of my performing career. Uh, I might say I still teach Sunday school in uh, Plains, Georgia, and Maranatha Baptist Church. All of you are invited, by the way, to come down any Sunday that I'm, that I'm there, which is if I'm in Plains, I teach Bible lessons about half from the New Testament, half from the Old Testament. And we have a lot of uh, visitors. Uh, we have a small church that holds about 300, but uh, one Sunday we had 875 visitors. Just wanted to come to see the curiosity of a politician teaching the Bible, I guess. Uh, but I still teach there. Rosa and I uh, separated ourselves publicly from the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000. Before that, I had been a very loyal Southern Baptist leader. I was one of the national leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. But as you probably know, we had some debates in the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and, they, and the more extreme conservatives or fundamentalist element in the Southern Baptist Convention won the votes. And then in the year 2000, they decided two things. One of them was to remove the words of Jesus Christ as the foundation for a biblical uh, belief. And they, they substituted inerrancy instead of Jesus Christ's teachings. I didn't like that. But the other thing they... Into a creed. Into a creed that you have to uh, adhere to if you're going to be a teacher or a preacher and that sort of thing. The other thing they did that we didn't like was they decided officially that women were inferior to men in the eyes of God. And this is a problem that uh, exists all over the world in the Islamic faith, in the Catholic religion, which doesn't let women be priests. But that was the first time it had ever been done by a Baptist. And now a, a woman in the Southern Baptist Convention churches cannot be a deacon, she cannot be a priest, she can't, cannot, preacher. cannot be a, a, a preacher, yeah, preacher. And, uh, and so, and, and she can't be a chaplain in the military. So we separated from the Southern Baptist Convention because of that. Uh, we never have withdrawn our church from the Southern Baptist Convention. We still give some help to the Southern Baptist Convention worldwide programs. But uh, Rosa and I have separate, separated from that. We, we belong to a, a small church. We have a, a male and a female pastor, they're man and wife. And Rosa is, is a deacon. We have women deacons in our church. So we, we give women an equal place in our church, which I believe is the teachings of the Bible. Uh, as you know, Paul, in his letter to the uh, Galatians, said there is no difference in the eyes of God between Jews and Greeks, uh, between men and women, between slaves and free. All are equal in the eyes of God, and that's what we believe. So that's why I separated from the Southern Baptist Convention. We still have good relationships with them. Our church does, but uh, personally, uh, we believe in the equal rights of women and that equal women are equal in the eyes of God. There were several questions concerning the haves and have-nots, and this question summarizes those others by saying, some years ago during one of these conversations, you referred to the disparity between rich and 
poor being the greatest threat to democracy. What is your feeling regarding the Occupy movement, the Occupy Wall Street, the 99%, and is there hope of overcoming this disparity? Well, I'm really reluctant to comment on that in particular, but I, I think that the 99% demonstrations uh, in Wall Street and so forth, have a, they have a right to do so, and they've made clear uh, the issue that I addressed uh, a number of years ago in this uh, same conference. At the turn of the century, in the year 2000, I was asked to make two major speeches, and for the very few times in my life, I was assigned a subject. One of, one of them was in Taiwan, and the other one was in Oslo, in Norway. And I was asked to speak, what, speak about what is the greatest challenge that the world faces in the new millennium, as the year 2000 came. And the subject of my speech was the greatest disparity, the greatest problem the world faces is the growing disparity between the rich and poor. And that has happened not only in inside countries, where in almost all the countries, particularly the United States, the rich people are getting richer and richer, and the middle income and lower income are going down, down in comparison. And that's been particularly effective in our country since I left office. The measured disparity when I left office in 1980 is twice as great now as it was then. And of course, that only, not only applies inside countries, but it, it, it applies between the richest countries on earth and the poorest countries on earth. Because we get richer and richer, and we are very stingy about sharing our wealth with others, and the poor countries get poorer and poorer in relation to that, as far as income is concerned, and healthcare, and housing, and that sort of thing. So that's still the greatest challenge that hasn't been met adequately. And I would say that almost every country in Latin America, for instance, I made that speech last week, as I told you, uh, is afflicted with that problem, where in, in a democracy, and when free enterprise comes, unless the government does take action concerning taxation and so forth to kind of equalize opportunities in life, the, the rich people, particularly if they can influence the outcome of elections, they become more and more powerful and more and more greedy and the poor people suffer accordingly. So that's, that's, as you know, one of the major debates going on in our country this year is what's going to happen about these issues uh, in the future. So I, I think I've over-described over the way I feel about this issue. What can you do to help the peace process in Colombia, as it has many enemies and it needs a lot of international support. We, have, we had a very good uh, president there named Uribe, uh, but he was very autocratic and dominated the country and, and, uh, and had uh, falling out with, with two of his neighbors, uh, Ecuador and Venezuela. Uh, since then, uh, a new president has come in, Santos, uh, Santos was, was Uribe's uh, Minister of Defense. And so in the last few months, the new president, Santos, has uh, restored diplomatic relations both with Ecuador and with Venezuela, which is a good step in the right direction for peace. As you know, the FARC, uh, which is the revolutionary group that has been uh, a problem inside Colombia for the last 50 years uh, have been almost an equal challenge to the government as far as uh, 
controlling the drug trade and assassinations uh, and kidnapping and so forth. And so uh, in the past, most of the uh, way to address FARC was to, was to fight against them militarily. And there was one effort was made earlier that it was aborted. In the last few weeks, though, Santos has reached out to the FARC and is now having peace talks with them. There's an article in the New York Times today about it. And uh, Santos is called on two foreign countries to help him with this peace talk. And the revolutionary groups have agreed to this. One is Norway and the other one is Cuba. So most of the peace talks will take place in Havana, Cuba. And President Castro in Cuba is one of the sponsors of the peace talks. Uh, and so this is what's going on. And uh, on the way to the, my speech in Washington last week to the Latin American group, uh, I was on the uh, radio talk show with President Santos. And I encouraged him to continue with his peace effort, hoped that it was successful, and offered the Carter Center's uh, assistance if they need our help, which I doubt that they will. So I think it's a very a wonderful development in Colombia to see new peace between Colombia and its two neighbors, and also trying to reach out to the FARC, which may or may not succeed. But at least it'll be a chance to end what you might call an ongoing revolutionary war that's lasted 50 years in Colombia. What do the two of you want to be remembered in history for? Um, well, I th I hope I'll be remembered. I hope people will remember that I've tried really hard to get good help for people with mental illnesses. <laughs> but I think uh, I, I've had so many wonderful opportunities, and I've done the best I could with, with those opportunities, and I hope people will know that I did that. I tried my best to take advantage of well, I want to be remembered as a good husband for Rosen, and also uh, uh, we want to be remembered as good grandparents. Uh, we have four children. We have 12 grandchildren. We have seven great-grandchildren. We have two more on the way. So I, I don't know if we want to be remembered as the most prolific <laughs> inhabitants of the, of the White House or not, but I think we are holding our own there. But I think two basic words that uh, permeate all of the efforts of the Carter Center, and that's human rights and peace. And I would hope that someday if people remember us and remember the Carter Center, that they'll say, well, you know, peace and human rights, uh, that wasn't a bad legacy to live. And on September the 9th, Jimmy became the longest living ex-president in the history of our country. I'm impressed with your command of statistics and math. <laughs> you didn't refer to notes. What advice do you have for the rem remaining us, for the remainder of us, to keep as sharp as you? <laughs> well, I, I don't. I, I live well. I, these things that I talk about, the uh, Carter Center programs, I live with them. They're my life now. And uh, if you would remember your post office address or your telephone number, you would know. 
But I think the main thing is to live with something that's important and remember those. But I, I'm an engineer. Uh, that's my training, and I'm a nuclear engineer as well. And so I, I think that when we began the, began the Carter Center 30 years ago, one of the things that we decided to do for our donors in particular, and also to, to monitor our own progress or lack of progress, was to quantify what we do. So we can tell you almost exactly how many people on Earth have received uh, Mectizan to control rubber blindness last year. And I think it would be 12.6 million people. And we can tell you exactly how many latrines we built. How many of you remember that? <laughs> 1.2 million latrines. So, you know, when we go back and tell people we've got this many guinea worm cases left, we know exactly how many there are and we know which villages they're in and what we're doing about it. So I think that one of the things that we do to ensure that the Carter Center is not just uh, idealistic talk and dreams, but also practical achievements, is to have an engineering discipline on it. We also always have a balanced budget. Uh, we stay within our budget and we uh, take care of our funding and we make sure every dollar is spent well. So I think that being, having been a businessman, having been an engineer, uh, makes me familiar with figures. Uh, I'm not one of the great uh, public speakers, as you probably noticed from the Democratic Convention this, this past week, uh, but they have much, much greater speakers than I have, but at least I can remember how many latrines we have. <laughs> Several years ago, you averted a war on the Korean Peninsula. CNN accompanied you. What can you do to avert a war between Israel and Iran, and should Iran have the right to nuclear weapons? Well, I can't do anything. You know, this is a matter of, uh, of decision to be made in Jerusalem and in Washington. I personally hope that we don't have a war uh, with Iran. Uh, I would hate to see Israel move on its own to attack Iran uh, militarily. And my support is for President Obama, who's refraining from drawing a so-called line in the sand or a red line that would be almost impossible for Iran to maintain. Uh, you probably noticed last week that Iran took over the chairmanship of a non-aligned movement. 120 nations were in Tehran in Iran, and almost unanimously they voted that Iran had a right under the Non-Proliferation Treaty to develop atomic fuel up for peaceful use. Iran claims it's for peaceful use. I, don't, I, I doubt the accuracy of that statement, but they do have a right to, to develop and to enrich fuel to 20% to put into uh, research and also to generate electricity with. So my hope is that we'll find a peaceful way to resolve uh, that issue, and my hope is that uh, Israel will not act unilaterally. I think if Israel does act unilaterally, that might drag the United States into an unwanted war. Almost invariably, when I've had a choice as president, I chose not to go to war. And if you look at our country in the last 60 years, except for four years, we've been at war continually in some way or another. Some of those wars 
have been necessary. Most of them have not. And, and I believe that we'll find that the a war with Iran to keep them from having enriched uh, uranium is a war that's not necessary. But that's completely out of our hands. We don't have any influence uh, in the White House at this point on this issue or in Israel. But I hope that their rationality will prevail. One uh, final question. Uh, dear Mr. President, I came all the way from Philadelphia just to see you. May I please have a hug? Candy Egan Perry. A hug. Candy Egan Perry. It depends on whether it's man or woman. There she is over here. The answer is yes. Well, those are all the uh, John, that was questions. My best question tonight. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> all the questions we have time for tonight. I'm going to ask you to remain at your seat as the Carters leave, but join me in thanking them for a wonderful evening. enjoy the great experience of hearing their candid thoughts on any number of topics. The next program of Conversations at the Carter Center will be What's Next for China? Some of you had questions about China. This will be Wednesday, October 24th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And this will also focus on the new generation of leadership in China. So you can make reservations free for this event at cartercenter.org beginning Monday, September 24th. Also, there's a great exhibit at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum called Industrial Scars, the Photography of J. Henry Fair. And this exhibit will be on display until October 14th, so I hope you will go to the museum and see that. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. We look forward to seeing you in October. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.